You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, uh, it, you know, it could seem a little freaky. It, um, it's a scary. What, who, who is the Holy, what is the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Ghost, you know, we say in the creed. And um, when we hear that from Maria, we realize, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's just a matter of, of life in the presence of God. And the, and the point that I want to communicate to you this evening is that when you and I face all manner of discouragement, the main thing is that God is with you. That God is within you. And I don't really think you can know who you are until you understand the fullness uh, of the implications of that fact, that the Holy Spirit of Jesus is in your life. And I think we're going to see that as we look at this text together I'm going to um, invite you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And uh, in, in your small group, you'll be reflecting more carefully, I hope, on all 17 of these verses. I just want to call your attention, initially at least, to one of them. And that's verse 11. Romans 8, verse 11, on page 919 of the Pew Bible. Uh, Would you stand with me? Let's read this verse aloud together. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that you can say, thanks be to God, if you believe it. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Living Spirit of Jesus Christ, we call upon you to continue to speak as we worship the Savior this evening. We pray that you would break through the hardness of our hearts, break past the defenses into the inner sanctum of our being, and there present to us the love of God in our Savior, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. I want to begin tonight with a sentence from an article that uh, was published in 2003 in Sports Illustrated magazine. And I, I, I want you to, um, to catch the first line of this article, this first sentence. So I'll read it to you twice. article begins this way. The Jeremy Brown who steps into the batter's box in early October, is and is not the fat catcher from Hueytown, Alabama, whom the Oakland A's had made the most unlikely first-round draft choice in recent memory. The Jeremy Brown, who steps into the batter's box in early October, is and is not the fat catcher from Hueytown, Alabama, whom the Oakland A's had made the most unlikely first-round draft choice in recent memory. Now, that's a bizarre sentence. What is the writer asking you to do? He's asking you to consider who Jeremy Brown is. Which Jeremy Brown has stepped into the batter's box in late fall baseball in October? I mean, there he is, Jeremy Brown. And I understand if you've been reading the press clippings around that time, particularly around 2001, Jeremy Brown gets a lot of ridicule 
in the press. See, by one set of statistics, Jerry Brown appears to be a guy who really should be discouraged in the batter's box because Jeremy Brown is five foot eight inches. He's not that tall. He's 215 pounds, which doesn't seem that bad to me, but I guess if you're 5'8 and a professional athlete, you could expect to get a little bit of gruff from the media. And he did. In fact, uh, the recruiters who saw him playing 2001 said he never met, met a pizza that he didn't like, which, by the way, is true of me also, but I'm not so good in the batter's box. So by those statistics... Jeremy Brown's going to have a tough go of it. And here he is in October, and the pitcher winds up, and he throws that first pitch. Now, this is the second inning. Four batters have come up for the Oakland A's. The pitchers had no trouble dispatching the first three batters for the Oakland A's, and the fourth one is Jeremy Brown. And in comes the pitch. He takes it, doesn't even move. In fact, Jeremy Brown doesn't even move for the first three pitches. And maybe his detractors in the stands are thinking, I don't think he can move. (laughs) Maybe Jeremy himself wonders if he can move. But on the fourth pitch, he swings, and he connects, and quite squarely. And he begins to move up the first baseline. Terrifyingly fast in his own mind. He's well beyond his capacity, he thinks. For the rest in the stadium, terrifyingly slow as he lumbers up that first base line. And when he comes to first base, he's just raising his head enough to see the center fielder and the left fielder beginning to converge on the back wall. And he thinks, maybe, just maybe, I could round this corner. Now, that article, Sports Illustrated article, and that first sentence was written by Michael Lewis, who also wrote, wrote the book called Moneyball. And, and maybe this scene begins to uh, be familiar to you because in the movie Moneyball, there's a point in which uh, Billy Bean, who's the general manager for the Oakland A's, is sitting in the clubhouse, empty clubhouse, with um, another guy uh, who's a Yale, young Yale economist by the name of Peter Brand. And Billy Bean has come to a point of discouragement in his life. Discouragement about the team and the choices that he's made. And Peter Brand sits him down and says, I want you to watch this film clip, Jeremy Brown. And he, and he runs the tape. And, uh, and Brand, this young Yale economist, narrates what happens as Jeremy Brown makes his way up the first baseline. Brand says, here's, here's what's really interesting. Because Jeremy is going to do what he never does. He's going to go for it. He's going to round first base. And he's going to go for it. Okay? And they watch this grainy image as Jeremy Brown puts his head down, drops his left shoulder, and begins to turn the corner towards second base. Takes a few steps. He's moving at a high speed. And then all of a sudden, his legs buckle. They just whip out from underneath him. And he goes, it's kind of a fall. It's an embarrassing fall. A back flop. Charlie Brown. Lewis calls it, back onto his back. He actually jams his finger. You don't learn that in the movie. He's in searing pain. He rolls over onto his stomach and does everything he can to make it back to first base before the throw comes. And just as he's reaching for first base, his eyes lift up and he sees all of his teammates in the dugout. What are they doing? Laughing. They're laughing at him, hysterically bent double. And this is just what Jeremy would expect. And, and, and Bran says to, uh, to uh, Billy Bean, this is all Jeremy's nightmares coming to life. And Bean 
played by Brad Pitt, shakes his head. He says, oh, they're laughing at him. And Brad says, yeah. And Jeremy's just about to find out why. Jeremy's about to realize that the ball went 60 feet over the fence. He hit a home run, and he didn't even realize it. And Jeremy Brown gets up on the first base, just relieved that they didn't throw him out. And he's, he's brushing the dirt out of his uniform. And he's looking at his teammates, laughing at him. And then he finally figures it out. As you look out in outfield, and none of the outfielders are running. And there's no ball in play. And they're all looking up into the stands. Jeremy, you hit a home run. And absolutely exuberant, he rounds the bases and comes home. Now, back to the original question. Who is this guy, Jeremy Brown, in, in the batter's box? He is and he is not the fat catcher from Hueyville, Alabama. By one set of statistics, you might think that he is. 5'8", 215 pounds. But there are another set of statistics that you could know about Jerry Brown as, as well. Jeremy Brown. Uh, and because as he has showed up in the camps, this unlikely first-round draft pick, uh, he has turned out to be quite a batter. In fact, in those first few months of the season, his batting average was 310. His on-base average was 444%. His slugging percentage, 545. In 55 games, he hit 40 home runs. This man can hit. And so choose your statistics. Short, overweight, never rounds first base, or a slugger. And, and let me tell you, this is the, when you and I face discouragement in our lives, I want to suggest to you that the problem is fundamentally that we are looking at the wrong statistics. Discouragement, by my dictionary, is the state of being deprived of confidence, it's about losing your confidence. It's when you come to believe, I do not have what it takes. And you say that to yourself. And you may say that to people around you. I do not have what it takes. Now, the Apostle Paul, he understands this. And it's hard to believe because he's the great Saint Paul. But if you're reading the book of Romans and what he's communicating to the church, the Christians in Rome, he, he, he talks about his own discouragement. And Renee Sunberg did a great job last Sunday talking about the inner struggle that's inside of the Apostle Paul. He says, the very thing that I want to do, I don't do. And I end up doing the thing that I definitely don't want to do. And he, and he ends chapter 7 as he begins to move into our chapter 8 by saying, wretched man that I am. When the Apostle Paul looks in the mirror, he does not see the heroic figure of the Bible that you and I have been taught to see in Sunday school class. He doesn't see that initially. He sees someone that makes him say, wretched man, I don't have what it takes. And yet, that is and is not the Apostle Paul. Because there's so much more going on in his life. And he says, there's so much more going on in your life too. And that's why he's so insistent uh, in this section of Romans on helping the Christians in Rome to know who they are. And by my count, 16 times he says, you, 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 in 17 verses. Know who you are. See, get the statistics right.
He's not just talking, by the way, about the before conversion Paul and the after conversion Paul. And a lot of us would like to think, oh, yeah, my life was a mess before I came to know Jesus. And then it's all neat and tidy afterwards. No. One of the guys in my small group, one of my small groups said, you know, I think it's that Paul was um, very well educated and he had a tendency to be condescending. And we see that in his relationship with Peter. And we see that in his relationship with John Mark. And so he looks in the mirror and he says, I don't love well. I know the heart of the law is to love God and to love your neighbor, and I just don't do it well. But look at the right measures. We say, what is the measure of a man? We've got all of our measures. Uh, For example, a a 15-year-old might look at these statistics and become discouraged. She might say, I'm 15 years old, and I I have a group of four friends, but uh, they have just subtracted me from it. Four minus three equals one, and now I'm alone. Or a 20-year-old might uh, look at these statistics. I'm 40 pounds too heavy, and, and I'm on my sixth diet and get discouraged. Somebody else says, I'm 25 years old. I have now hit the milestone of having applied to 100 jobs, and I have been employed by exactly zero since getting out of college. Someone at age 35 says, we've got two jobs, four children, and the expenses are exceeding the income. Someone else says, I'm 50, and my rent is $1,000 a month, and the number of homes that I have owned in my life is zero, and I'm still looking for spouse number one. Someone else, at age 60, I have the best ideas of my career, and I finally have the staff to pursue these academic projects, but I have funding for less than one of them. Or at age 70, Someone says, you know, it looks like I didn't plan well. And I'm afraid when I look at the number of years that are left, likely in my life, and the amount of money in my retirement account, that I am going to outlive my funding. And the math is not working out. I stopped there, and people asked me in the morning, well, what about the 80-year-olds? And I said, I, I don't know. I guess by the time you get to 80, you figured it out, right? So I, <laughs> I just don't know. Um, But we're looking at the wrong numbers. And here's what the Apostle Paul wants you to see. Look at uh, verse 11 again. He says, let me give you the relevant statistics in the face of discouragement. There's one you. There's one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. Do the math. There is Jesus. That's the one who was raised from the dead. Jesus, the son of God. That's one. There is the one who raised him from the dead. That's the father. He's God. That's two. And then there is the spirit of him, the spirit of the father who raised Jesus from the dead That's three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's talking about the mystery of the Trinity. Now, the word Trinity is never found in the Bible, and the doctrine of the Trinity is never explained in the Bible, and yet the reality of the Trinity is on every single page of the Scripture, from Genesis to maps. It's all about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, through his Spirit, is in you. And therefore, you have a Father in heaven. Who is the Holy Spirit? I just want to take a moment. If we're going to be a community who's 
faithfully sharing hope in Jesus Christ, there will be no way to do so apart from understanding who the Spirit is and stepping into the renewal that he wants to give us individually and corporately. So who is the Holy Spirit? Well, if we, if we just look at the book of Romans, there's so many places, that, rich descriptions that we tend to miss. In chapter 1, verse 4, uh, Paul says the Holy Spirit is the power of the resurrection. He's the one who brings Jesus back from the dead. We see that here in 8 as well. In chapter 5, verse 5, the Holy Spirit is the one who pours love into our hearts. In chapter 7, verse 6, the Holy Spirit is the one who uh, is the source of new life. He renews us. In chapter 8, verse 2, the Holy Spirit is the one who sets us free from sin. He's a liberator. In in 8, 6, he's the one who gives us peace. In 8, 14, he's the one who leads us. In 8, 13, he's he's an executioner. He puts to death the old self. In 8.27, he helps us pray. The spirit of Jesus is praying with you and for you. Even when you and I are not praying, he's interceding on our behalf. And then at the end of the letter, the Holy Spirit is the one through whom we can abound in hope. Hope is a gift of the Holy Spirit, the one who is in you. The images that the scripture uses are all images of vitality and life and power. Images like, for example, just the word spirit. In both Hebrew and Greek, it means breath. Ruach in Hebrew, the breath of God. Or pneuma in Greek, the the breath of God. The breath of God is within you. Think of that as you inhale and exhale. The uh, the image that we see is water. Water in an arid country in the Middle East means life, means power. And Jesus offers us living water. From his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Speaking of his spirit, we're told. Power, life. Another image is uh, organic growth, like a plant. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him shall bear much fruit. That's the power of a seed. You put a seed underneath concrete. Let a tree drop a seed there. And you know what happens 20 years later? That'll push the concrete, break it into pieces. And there's a tree right in our sidewalk in Seattle. It's the power of the Holy Spirit ready to break through the hardest places in our lives. Paul has this interesting dichotomy in Romans 8. And we won't explore it now. Frankly, it's complicated, his logic. And yet... Here's, if I could simplify it a little bit to make sense of it, I I, want to suggest this. You know, he's talking about two realms, the realm of what he calls the flesh and the realm of the spirit. And I want you to think about that as though they were almost two kingdoms. The kingdom in which Jesus Christ is king and the kingdom in which anything else is supreme. And I noticed this, that uh, the word statistics actually traces back in history, I understand, to uh, political science. As the modern state emerged, they began to study the resources of these political entities. And so the field was called statistics, the study of the resources of a state. And so imagine that there are two states. There is the state 
over which Jesus rules and the state over which everything else does. And what are the resources of those two states? And he's really saying this, 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 both of these things are going on right now in human history. And he calls it a flesh-spirit dichotomy. He's really working with the same dichotomy that comes all the way through the book of Romans in different ways. We had it in chapter 5 between the Adam, the, the first Adam, and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. We see it in Paul's understanding of the two ages. There's the age that is passing away and the age that is, is to come. And these two are overlapping and we're living right in that overlap. In these two kingdoms, it's as though they have two ambassadors, two proxies, and each of them are right there, as uncomfortable as it is, are within you and within me. There's a representative of this dominion called the flesh, and there's a representative of the dominion referred to by the spirit, and they're both there, and it's uncomfortable. I want you to understand what flesh means, because it's commonly misunderstood, the first most common misunderstanding, Paul's making a distinction between the material world and the non-material world, or like our soul and our body. That's not his distinction here. The second misconception that we have is that he's talking about, when he says the flesh, he's talking about sins of the body, like earthly lusts or physical lusts or something like that. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about these two realms. And I like the translation of the New International Version that renders the word flesh in this context as sinful nature. So now maybe you can understand a little bit more about what Paul's saying in uh, verse 5 where he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, which are passing away. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, which are coming in to revitalize and to renew all of creation. Let me give you an illustration, and I'll, let's change the subject a little bit from baseball, because I know some of the, sometimes the sports analogy get a little bit tiresome. So think, let's think of trains. Uh, imagine a train that's just filled with Yankees fans. Okay. <laughs> you, you, you live in Boston, and you want to develop some new business in New York City, so you get on a train. Unfortunately, the Yankees have just beat the Red Sox in Fenway Park the night before, and all of the cars are filled with Yankees fans. I mean, you just can't get in a, find a car that's not. And so as you go down, you think, I'm going to sleep, I'm going to read, I'm not going to talk with anybody, and, and yet it is just oppressive for you, you know, all this talk about how great the Yankees. So you think about halfway there, you know, I've had enough, I'm going to go home. I'm going back to Boston. No business in New York is, it, it, it is worth all of this trauma. And so you get out of your seat, and you just walk down, and you start walking north, right? You walk down the aisle of the train from car to car, you're heading back to Boston, right? You know what? That's not going to work. And for many of us, that's how we conceive the spiritual life. We get up, and we turn around, and we think, I'm just going to make all the right decisions. I'm heading back. I know where I should be, and I'm going to get myself back there. But you know what, friend? You're on a train, if you are on a train that is heading to New York, you will end up in New York no matter how you walk around. And the Apostle Paul says, you know, look, if you were part of the world of the flesh, this place in which Jesus is not Lord, then, you know, you'll end up where that's going. But he says, but you're not. You are not on that train. You are on the train that is drawn by a different engine. By the way, I don't know if they still do this, but when you take a train from Boston down to New York City, you, you used to always have to stop in, around New Haven because they were switching from diesel to electric and you had to wait till they attached uh, the new engine. And I, and I think if you were to think about this, what if one day in New Haven they made a mistake and they, put, they, got, they were switching around the engines and they just kind of caught 
confused. Uh, Casey Jones was working that day, you know, and they put the, um, the engine on the other end of the train that you were on, and you thought we were heading to New York, but the train is actually going back to Boston. And now you're on the train that is heading where you want to go. And I think that's what Paul is saying. You are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you. I know who's driving the train of your life, and I know where it is going. It is not you who saves yourself. It is God who is saving you, and God will not be disappointed in your life. That's why he's put his Spirit within you. That's who you are now. You're headed home. And by the way, you can participate in that. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, that means you know you're on the train, that Jesus is your Savior. And when you understand that the Holy Spirit is in your life, then guess what? You are invited to get up and walk home. That's the image that Paul likes to use for walking in the Spirit. It's walking, living. It's in this text. It's translated living. Keep in step with the Spirit. Get up out of your aisle and start to walk down that aisle and participate with the direction so that when that train arrives in South Station, Boston, Massachusetts, you'll be at the front of the train ready to step out of that first door. You're on your way home. You'll be a part of it. You walk with the Spirit. He leads you. So that when we get to verse 15, and we read this great verse about Abba, we understand what's been going on. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. There's a new authority in your life. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs. That means we inherit everything that God is. If you want to know what the spirit is doing in your life, what he's doing is he is downloading everything that Jesus is into your life. You are in Christ through faith, by grace. And everything that Jesus is is becoming yours. There's nobody but Jesus who is entitled to call God Father. And so if something within you, if the Holy Spirit puts something within that makes you do that, it's because you're in Jesus Christ. You stand in his relationship to the Father. And everything else that's Jesus is yours as well, not just his relationship to the Father, but his love, the way that Jesus loves, is becoming your love. His peace, his joy, his wisdom, his sense of justice, his courage, anything that you admire about Jesus Christ, everything that makes you, that attracts you to want to be here tonight to worship him and say, Jesus, you're great, all of that is in you through his spirit, and it's becoming yours day by day, step by step, as he leads you home. Home into Jesus' full identity. Well, what about you? Tomorrow you and I are going to wake up and we're going to find ourselves in the batter's box, aren't we? I don't know whether you feel discouraged tonight or whether you'll feel discouraged tomorrow, but at some point we're going to have to face the question. At some point the pitcher is going to wind up at you and send a fastball across the plate. And the question will be raised, who is you and who is you not? And all the statistics about your past will be true and you'll, you know, you'll, you'll look at all the bad decisions that you made and all the things you wish you hadn't done and all the data is there. But you choose, you choose which statistics really matter. Will it be those things or will it be one you, one God in three persons?
when you're discouraged, you're going to say to yourself, I do not have what it takes. And that's true. But God does. And that's what I want you to take home tonight. I do not have what it takes. But God does. And maybe, just maybe, you find yourself face to face with this challenge so that God can show you that he has. So that God can bring his power into your life and into mine. Maybe that's what this is about as a church in the face of our financial situation. This is a moment for us not to make the right decision, not to swing well, frankly, but to realize who's in our midst and to be renewed by that reality. I want to close by reading to you from Austin Ferrer. He's an Anglican of the last century. And two paragraphs really struck me this week. That's what he says. We come to throw ourselves on grace. But it is by grace that we throw ourselves on grace. Before we touch the cross, Christ has shouldered it. Before we shape a prayer, Christ has prayed it. Let the prayer of Christ, let the sacrifice of Christ, placed in my baptism, catch this, under the root of my heart, break upwards and displace the sunny rubbish of self-will to become my prayer and my resolution. But what are we? That is the point. What are we? According to the unbelieving philosophy, we are complex, single beings. But according to faith, we are complex, double beings. At a level deeper than that which any science studies, Christ feeds with himself the springs of our action. Nothing comes in from outside. When we act from the resources of divine grace, all the action and all the thought is in us. But it is Christ in us, feeding the deep root of the will. Christ giving himself to be ourself. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We've come tonight to drink at your well. We've come tonight that you might sow the good news of the gospel deep beneath our hearts. We thank you for the gift of your spirit. And we give ourselves to whatever you want to do that might renew us. To make all things new in us and through us and around us. We pray that you give us the courage to turn and to walk in the fullness of your spirit. We pray that these tithes and offerings as we gather and share them with one another might be an evidence of the abiding life of Jesus Christ bubbling up in us in joy and generosity. We pray that as it comes up through Jesus and through us as the branches attached to Jesus, it all might bear fruit, fruit for the healing of the nations. We pray in his name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301 extension 117.